Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. It's like the difference between inspiration and perspiration. Perspiration is in your armpits and there's no inspiration here. Now I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I'm your host, Brian Levine. It is a uh, special show tonight. Well, all right, not so special. But in uh, Pipe Parts, I'm going to talk about me. I'm going to give you an update on me and uh, what I'm doing. And then in uh, our guest is uh, more story time with Alan Schwartz. And this one's a little juicy, so... Uh, listen for the details and uh, listen to Alan tell stories about, uh, you know, working with uh, tobacco blenders and working with uh, pipe factories. So uh, a lot of juicy details in that. Uh, mailbag, music, rant, all that coming up in tonight's episode of the Pipes Magazine radio show. Uh, I have survived my week as a, a retail tobacconist working at uh, the McCraney's uh northern uh, lake store here and that was a lot of fun got to meet a couple of young pipe smokers while i was hanging out there so nice to see that uh this weekend you will find me at the columbus pipe show the naspc show you will find me there friday afternoon all day saturday so uh friday afternoon evening all day saturday and then hanging out again saturday night so stop by say hi i will just be uh wandering around and uh more on that um also don't forget uh several pipe shows on the horizon if you want details on those you can go to pipesmagazine.com and look up pipe shows and all the listings are right there as well as links to all the websites so please stop by say hi to me if you see me there uh lots of fun at a pipe show can't recommend it enough if you haven't been and uh, please remember to continue sharing the Pipes Magazine radio show on your uh, pipe smoking forums, pipe smoking groups, wherever it is. Keep sharing the word out. Uh, post them on Facebook. Uh, copy me on that. I love being tagged in those. And while you're there, if you're not a friend of mine on Facebook, follow me, friend request me, do whatever. You know, all those uh, little clickies and links with the little thumbs up. All right, let's get the show rolling. Everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. There's nothing quite like hunting at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. All right, here, here, here's how it goes. Um, all of my life, I've always worked in, in uh, industries or worked for companies that I believed in, enjoyed the product, uh, except for two, in two places. Uh, well, I, I wasn't really thrilled with working at McDonald's. And for two days, I was uh, selling over the telephone. I was selling a long-distance service, and I hated that with a passion. Uh, 
But every other job I've had, I have always enjoyed the job. Uh, And just to go through it, yes, I worked at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. I worked for a company before that that did uh, photo concessions at Universal Studios and a Six Flags Park. And, of course, you know, working at Disneyland. And then going forward, working in uh, in the cigar retail business in Beverly Hills, and uh, you know, working for Dunhill in both Las Vegas and Beverly Hills, and then on the wholesale side, Peter Stokeby, and working for the Trade Association. Uh, my time that I was affiliated with Brigham, I still have fond memories of of them and the product, and then at, at Sutliff as well. Um, and then something changed, and I'll be honest with you. Uh, it probably occurred right around the FDA. And what I discovered right around the announcing of the FDA was, you know, I wasn't having as much fun in the tobacco industry as I was before. I wasn't getting up and looking forward to going to work. Uh, my time working for Pipes and Tobacco's magazine, it was all talking about uh, deeming regulations and legal mumbo jumbo and uh, you know, and and not being you know, not being able to come out with new products. Uh, what I discovered was my favorite part of working in the tobacco industry was every Tuesday sitting down and uh, putting together a pipes magazine radio show, and then going to the three or four pipe shows a year. That's the part of the pipe and tobacco industry that I really liked. Uh, in the past couple of months, I've been able to hang out in some in smoke shops on Saturdays and, and, you know, and just hang out with the guys. And I enjoy that part of it. Uh, so when I, when I left Speccom almost a year ago, I started to think now, all right, what do I want to do with the, with the rest of my life? Uh, 50 years old now. And, uh, what do I enjoy doing? What do I want to do and how do I want to do it? Well, I like several things that are not in the tobacco industry. Um, I have a uh, obvious deep passion for the uh, Walt Disney Company and going to their parks. Um, not not so much the movies, but going to the going to Disney World or Disneyland, going to Disneyland Paris. Uh, Tokyo Disneyland is on our list of places to get to. Uh, I like traveling. I've done a lot of travel over my life. And I enjoy most of the, you know, most of the times that I've had to go traveling. I enjoy it. You get to see a new city, a new country, a new island, whatever it is. You get to get away and experience new cultures, new foods, new architecture. I like that. So, uh, you know, how do I, how do I work that into something that I enjoy doing? Well, over the past four months, I have been in uh, training to become an independent vacation planner affiliated with MEI and Mouse Fan Travel. And as of last week, I have passed my final test and I am now able to book uh, travel for you anywhere in the world. Uh, one of the things that I think is special that, uh, that I bring to it is that we as pipe smokers I know what it is. I know what it's like to travel as a pipe smoker. I know which areas at uh, Disney parks are best to sit down with your pipe. I know what the routine is like uh, traveling internationally or going on a cruise. I know how that works, and I can help all of us pipe smokers, even cigar smokers, 
with uh, you know, having the most enjoyable experience possible while you're traveling the world or traveling the country, whatever it is. Uh, in my training, I am now fully capable and able to handle uh, Europe, Asia, cruises, land, you know, land tours here. And if you're going to Walt Disney World or Disneyland, I'm able to help you with those. And here's the here's how it works. Um, in reality, you know, obviously the uh, the the places that you book with give us a commission. And being affiliated with MEI Travel and with Mouse Fan Travel, that gets me a whole lot of sources that are not available to the public. So I may be able to not only save you some money on where you want to go. But I will definitely save you some time and save you some uh, potential problems because in the training we have learned what, you know, I've learned what to look for and what, you know, what problems are out there, what, uh, uh, where the opportunities are for you to lose time or lose money while you're on vacation. So I can help you maximize your time, uh, your time planning the trip and your time while you're on your trip. Uh, and not only that, I won't, it won't cost you any more, but you know, may not be able to get one of the super duper discount airfares or whatever that is. Uh, but when it comes to a full fledged vacation, all I'm going to ask you to do is, uh, give me a shout, uh, hit me up on Facebook or Brian at pipes or my new email address for the travel stuff is brian.levine at mei-travel.com give me a chance uh, it won't cost you anything to uh, talk to me I can handle the uh, I can, we can handle the discussions over email Skype FaceTime or the telephone if you're here in the US and let me help you plan a vacation uh, I love, you know, I love going on vacation. I love planning the vacations and I'd love to be your, uh, your advocate and your uh, kind of personal concierge while you're going on vacation. And don't forget to bring your pipes and bring your tobaccos with you because I'll help you find the best places to uh, sit down and enjoy those pipes. All right. Uh, coming up in just a moment, um, <laughs> is some, uh, some juicy detailed story times with Alan Schwartz. This is Internet Radio. Meet Josh. Everyone at SmokingPipes.com holds customers as a high priority, but nobody interacts with them more personally than Josh. He's our professor of pipes, if you will. As a previous professor of history, educating the customer comes easily to him. He loves explaining the history of a particular pipe to a customer or coaching his customer service team. I love to help customers find that perfect piece for their collection. It's my job to make sure there's a smile on the other end of the line, and I'm more than happy to be the one to put it there. And although Josh's job can sometimes be quite demanding, he doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why? Because I don't just sell pipes, I smoke them. Call us at 1-888-366-0345. That's 1-888-366-0345. Or check us out online at SmokingPipes.com. We are quality. We are experts. We are smokingpipes.com. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. And remember the last time we talked to Alan, we were uh, at the beginning of him building up his uh, import-export company, XYZ. And uh, here he goes on uh, stories with Alan Schwartz. 
and uh, because that would bring more business in. More business meant I would be ordering more leather goods, and uh, you know, and uh, and uh, pipe filters, and and uh, pipes, and so on. So and, and uh, tobacco. So we built up quite a business, and I picked up a number of pipe brands where again I was familiar with the manufacturers largely through my doing work for various smoking magazines and having gone to see the people you know from Dunhill to Mastro de Paia and this one and that one and uh, you know Italian pipes and French pipes Chacom uh, and uh, you know and all that uh, so I, I basically I knew most of the important people in the business and that was very helpful to me, and I I became their customer, um, and you know, we liked each other. So I got help and shortcuts, and I was able to pick up the phone and say to uh, Yves Grenard at Chacom, uh, who who operates, uh, you know, what do you think as a pipe maker, which is the best, most interesting handmade pipe coming out of France? Okay, whatever that meant, or out of uh, Germany, or wherever he was, or somebody else, or find that information from uh, Kohlhauser. And I got to know a lot of people, and uh, you know, and picked up a lot of product. And uh, in some cases, uh, you know, the uh, uh, later on, uh, and well, even before that, I was picking up a product and people because, uh, and 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 um, when I was operating out of James B. Russell's. Um, uh, warehouse in in uh, Upper Saddle River, New Jersey, because because they uh, I just got to know them, and uh, you know, and, and and we would we were doing business, a lot of complex business uh, transactions. Uh, it was fine, and I was I was selling to uh, retailers uh, pipes that came from major manufacturers. That's what kind of what I was talking about before. Even as major a manufacturer as Dunhill used to sell a lot of um, pipes that either became basket pipes or or were intended for uh, own brand usage. Okay, they weren't yeah. the Dunhills that you were going to find in the shops uh, because that that was Dunhill is a golden name. But they were manufactured in the same factory of lesser quality briar and finished differently. And I used to buy up, you know, lots of them. Uh, I don't mean many, lots and many, but, you know, certain minimal purchases. And I had a number of customers. And I would, uh, pipe shops around the country, and I would get their name stamped on the pipe. And uh, they had this pipe made in England. It didn't say made by Dunhill, you know. But they could slip that, that slip privately, you know, without being on a record. And that's what they did. So I did very well with that. And I brought that same kind of business I let that slide a little because by then I had I had other manufacturers able to do the same thing for me when I was in uh, when I was operating out of Manhattan with the offices in Upper Saddle River I wasn't able to uh, you know uh, uh, control that market in, in that way but I knew a lot about it but once we got once we got into Atlanta and I was representing uh, Mastro and Chacom and this one and that one, and French manufacturers and German manufacturers and so on, I was able to uh, I was able to direct private labels and ask for private labels and we got them and so we built up a very nice business and eventually we had a the warehouse was too small we had at least a second warehouse in the same complex where I could use for storing the uh, 
pallets of tobacco and uh, not pipes. I wouldn't keep them because it would be, uh, but you know, the pipes we stored inside our regular primary warehouse. But we had another one right across the delivery court alley, and we kept uh, we kept all the uh, all the shipping crates with uh, all kinds of tobacco and uh, whatever else, whatever whatever wouldn't be harmed by uh, variable temperatures. You know. Uh, Although we kept a steady temperature, but you know, but changes in the weather. Uh, anyway, that's that's jumping ahead a little bit, but uh, those are the parameters of the story, and I could uh, amplify any section of it you want. But uh, and then about as I said, eight or ten years ago, I started to, uh, you know, I was approaching literal retirement age, approaching sixty-five, and. Uh, I decided that enough is as good as a feast. So uh, I, I let it be known that I wanted to sell the company, and uh, Mike Gold at Arango uh, was one of the people I was talking with, and we finally concluded the deal um, because I knew that even though he was not a, a tobacco man primarily, that he was a honest and courageous uh, person. He had uh, he had his head on straight, and that he would. Yeah do his best at handling the brands, even if he couldn't tell you the difference when he smoked between Burley and Virginia, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the twice a year that he lights a pipe. <laughs> I say that with all great affection, I have tremendous respect for him, and he has people working for him that know a great deal about the product, and at least they know how to handle it, and they, they use pipes and so on, so it worked out very well. And I... You know, I'm happy to be affiliated with them. Uh, so, Alan, at the at, uh, you know at the beginning of X Y Z, did you create the? That's when you kind of created the the Wessex brand. Yes, I did, um, but because I knew what I wanted, or took the advice of some people who I thought knew more than I did, and I was right; they knew more than I did, um, and. Um, you know, I could go into uh, details, and a lot of it had to do more with marketing, uh, to be frank with you. I knew what I liked, and I think that the mistake of a lot of people who start to blend tobacco or mix tobacco, and there's a difference between a blend and a mixture, and I'll get to that later, but um, they, they're trying to please themselves. And that's all right, as long as pleasing yourself will please enough other people for you to go commercial with it and earn some money for doing it. But, and if you're very lucky, that'll happen. And then you've got a double win. But if you don't pay attention to the market, you wind up with something that you and maybe half a dozen friends enjoy, <laughs> and that will not earn a living for you. Um, and, and it's very hard to sell. And uh, the people who run companies uh, that distribute don't want a loser. And, and I'm not using the loser yeah. in, in in that sense of uh, a political sense. I'm using it in the sense that uh, they don't want to stock something that they may not be able to sell and then can't return. So it's, right. uh, it's, it's understandable. So the answer is yes. I took a lot of different advice. And uh, that's how I got to some of the Europeans, uh, Michael Kohlhauser, for example, in, in Germany, Hans Peterson in Denmark, and his brother Jens, uh, yep. uh, people in the United States, 
that that I knew who were doing a, what I thought was a good job with tobacco, or else I could learn from their mistakes. And Elliot Knackwalter was one of them. After he bought Wilkie's, uh, Elliot was a good friend. I mean, he's he's not he's not an unfriend. I just don't see him very much now. Every yeah. once in a while, I see him at a show. But um, you know, he's master pipe maker, and he he bought a store that was a tobacco store, uh, fundamentally. And all the Wilkie's pipes came from outside. Was named Wilkie's. They didn't make their own pipes. Uh, so um, that's. Uh, I sought the advice of people who I thought knew what they were doing, A, and B, understood the market. And that also included my, my old friends at the Barclay Rex uh, pipe shop, um, who I knew very well for you know, many years. As I said, my father had been a customer there, and I got to know the whole you know, four generations of Nastries, N-A-S-T-R-I, who, who, who owned, owned the company. And uh, I learned a lot from them. I listened to what they said. I tried... What they, what they said, and then I went to the commercial people, the, the, the blenders and blending houses, and uh, and we put together what we knew. That's how Wessex got started. And it was tailored for taste at first, because our first tryout of it was in the German market. And the German market goes for aromatic tobaccos. You can sell very, very small quantity of the English style, or which can be uh, a mixture or or uh, the pressed flake. Uh, uh, you'll sell some of it, uh, but very little. The large majority of stuff in the German market is highly aromatic, but flavored in a different way, or aromatic at one at one level or another on the intensity scale. But it's flavored mostly uh, with uh, pure substances rather than chemicals. That's that's the major difference. Um, McBaron, for example. Uh, I remember visiting McBaron early, early years on a story for one magazine or another, and as they showed me around, I saw these sacks of flavoring. I said, what are these? They're flavoring materials. Well, what were the flavoring materials? The flavoring materials were pure blocks of licorice. I mean, yeah. really blocks of it. You know, I mean, it was not as licorice grows, and of course, licorice doesn't grow, but it was the it was the end product of the manufacture of licorice, a consumable licorice, and it was in in blocks and chunks in a, in a large burlap bag, and the same not not quite the same thing, but molasses as well, and uh, and honey, and various other kinds of f- flavors that they use. Some had to be mixed with an alcohol or water base in order to get the essence out of it, and others were um, were actual substances that were cut up very fine, uh, dissolved in water, and sprayed on the tobacco. So I learned a lot from these guys. Um, they have a problem. They don't have a problem. They have a legislation practically throughout Europe, certainly true in England, France. Fran- France, I don't know so much about that. Uh, they're a little more liberal with the flavoring. But, but again, I didn't visit any uh, French tobacco blenders because uh, the French are not known for their tobacco blending. Everything is everything in France is is produced by the uh, French monopoly and uh, controlled by the French monopoly. And now, even though it's not really true that there's a monopoly that controls it all, it's still true indirectly. Uh, and anything that comes from the outside literally comes from the outside. And again, the monopoly is the clearinghouse. So, if something is flavored with uh, with lic- licorice or honey. Uh, which really comes from a bottle, uh, rather, I don't mean a, a jar or, or a 
the raw material, the real raw material, but it's the flavor, the flavor essence. It's not acceptable in the UK. Well, it wasn't. I mean, I don't know the law last week. You know, yeah. it's, I'm sure it's changed. <laughs> but certainly when I was uh, getting into this, that's that was my understanding. So I didn't really bother with that because I wasn't appealing to the French market with anything like that. I was going in another way, you know, taking to going for the high-end consumers in France, who many of whom liked English mixtures. So that that was there. But anyway, I created to start with three mild, from mild aromatic to full aromatic uh, Wesca blends in in Germany with Michael Kohlhaser and Hans Peterson and. Um, it was a sort of cooperative effort because uh, Kohlhaser was too big to blend small portions of tobacco, and Peterson well, didn't didn't want to do that either. But I developed the blends with Kohlhaser and with him, and with a lot of experimentation, a lot of time spent, and and shuttling between the factories. Uh, uh, Horsens in Denmark is a three-hour drive from uh, Kohlhaser in Hamburg, and uh, it's it's a uh, you know, it's a half-hour flight uh, from Hamburg to uh, Horsens. But, but, of course, by the time you get through with all the transfers, uh, you know, and the waiting for the flight, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's three hours anyway. So I would often drive and spend overnight there and then not in the factory, at a hotel, and we'd go out and talk and so on. Same thing with uh, Michael. But we worked out three blends that seemed to be satisfactory, and the agreement was that Peterson would produce a certain amount. Uh, yeah, I don't remember what it was. 100 kilos, let's say. 100 kilos of this blend, or 200. I, I really just don't remember the numbers, uh, and it's not important. He would produce that blend, ship it down to Kohlhaase. Kohlhaase would keep it and um, use it as required. That was the agreement, because Kohlhaase always had a very good reputation and I think the boys still carry it on. They realize that that mom and pop retailers, which were the heart of their business at that time, yeah. didn't really want to, to buy large quantity of something they didn't know about, or even if they knew about it, they were running a little shop in the corner of some street, wherever it was, whether it was in Europe or the United States. And they couldn't afford to keep a, a large stock of any particular thing, except something they knew was in heavy demand. And we'll be back in just a minute. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Continuing story time with Alan Schwartz. 
So they would order small quantities, and that can drive a factory crazy. So Kohlhaas say at certain minimums, I mean, you couldn't buy less than a kilo of tobacco, but a kilo is, uh, you know, uh, 10 tins at, at the time. Uh, and, um, yeah, at the time, they they weren't into these mini measurements. You know, there was, it was uh, uh, two ounces was the American measurement before they cut it back to an ounce and three quarters and then to an ounce and a half. And, and or 50 grams in, in the European countries, 50 grams or 100 grams. That's the way it was. So and two ounces is about as close to 50 grams as you're going to get without fiddling too much. So you, we, uh, you, they, they, the minimum order would be a kilo of tobacco. And the minimum order I had to give Michael in order then to start the process going was, uh, you know, several hundred tins of, of, of each of each different tobacco. And then what wasn't sold instantly, what wasn't shipped out to a shipper in the United States or in England, um, to the office in the United States of Wessex Tobacco, or in London we had one too. Whatever wasn't shipped to us... Um, was uh, was held by him on, on call, you know, until we needed it. So there was always a little reserve, and he would make he would make some. So it Peterson he would make some in reserve, so that should there, there be a sudden call. And basically, I had to lean on the professionals in the business because I could come in and you know and tell them what I wanted, but I needed them to tell me what I didn't want. And what I didn't want <laughs> yeah. was a large stock of tobacco, dutiable tobacco at the end of the tax year uh, held on my behalf in any particular country, whether it was the United States or whether it was um, um, Germany or, or England, uh, where I was doing principal business at the time. So, you know, we had to work with them. They said, oh, Alan, you know, we, we, we're not going to, I know you put in an order that you want delivered uh, mid-January, but we're not going to blend it until uh, uh, January 2nd because da-da-da, uh, because we we don't want to pay the duty on it here, which we simply have to transfer that as a cost to you because at the end of the year, they have to file exactly what they have in stock. They have to do inventory and anything that is manufactured and prepared, ready for for public consumption is dutiable. So you, you learn all the little rules and you work around yeah. them. And so sometimes shipments were late and so on and people had to live with it. Um, that's what imported often means. Anyway, those were my experiences in in the preparation of tobacco as far as the actual blending was concerned. Uh, I had to leave a lot of that up to the people who knew what they were doing because I knew what sure. I liked, but at first I really didn't know what I was doing. And uh, Brian, I, I'm going on with this. I'm getting, I'm boring myself, but I don't know if I'm boring anybody else. <laughs> no, I'm... <laughs> What happened to a uh, let's say you let's say you introduced a blend and you had a couple hundred tins of it and it just didn't take off. I mean, what what would you do then? We would sell it off at uh, wholesale prices, or we would wait until one of the trade shows, and I used to attend a lot of them, and or one of the pipe pipe club shows. And I would try to encourage people to take that particular blend. I would bring a sufficient stock and often offer a very tempting price. And uh, sometimes, sometimes I, mostly I was lucky. Most, mostly I was lucky I didn't get stuck with too much. But, uh, you know, someone will always buy a bargain. I, yep. I've discovered <laughs> that. Uh, they always will. It doesn't matter. Uh, you know, the... Uh, um, I'll tell you a funny story. A funny story didn't happen. It wasn't about the tobacco, but in a moment, it's uh, 
So if something was selling, I'm just making this up, if something was selling for $5 a tin and you knew that your wholesale on it, you were paying, let's say, the, the normally, normal in the tobacco business, the normal, normal markup is uh, what they call what they call Keystone. You know it, certainly. I don't know yeah. if most of your readers do, but it's double, double, and double. So I make something 50 cents, I sell it to, uh, you know, outside. I put a. I make something. It costs me fifty cents. I put a dollar, a dollar price on it to sell it to the business, whether that business is a wholesaler or somebody or whoever. I sell it to them for a dollar. I'm a manufacturer now. I sell it to them for a dollar. Now that, uh, so now the they, they have a product that costs them a dollar. Let's say me. So now I want to make some money on it. So I charge two dollars to the shop okay now the shop has this tin for two dollars and they want to sell it for four dollars to the to the consumer which is that that's generally the way it works sometimes the margins are larger or smaller either way and very big companies sometimes encourage purchase of it by discounting very slightly so instead of reselling it for two dollars uh they will resell it for Let's take a dollar seventy-five. So that means that the retailer can now sell it for three fifty rather than four dollars. And you'd be surprised when how much people make that distinction between a few pennies. You know, we want to just go into a supermarket and you'll see people doing it. One product is you know a dollar seventy-nine. The other is a dollar eighty-four. And a lot of people will buy the product that's a dollar eighty-four to save a nickel. Uh, and, and there was a time when a nickel meant something. You know, it was a fair on the on on the, on the train or bus <laughs> in New York City. But but it, it is it's no, no longer meaningful money, and yet and yet a lot of people still do it. Uh, they'll buy the uh, regular brand rather than the store brand. Brand. It goes on in every business. Anyway, uh, I learned what what the market would bear and what I could charge, and that also was had to be a reflection of the valuation I wanted somebody to put on the product. And that's a well-known uh, uh, mechanism carried on by largely the largely the uh, sales uh, outlets, and I mean by retailers, who understand the market well enough to know that a smoker is willing to pay premium price for something that he considers extra special. And uh, very often it, it warrants uh, that price, but also it reinforces the idea of exclusivity. Dunhill and Davidoff and those kind of retailers learned that years ago. You know, what before you and I were even conceived, <laughs> they, they knew that. They knew that. You know, if you if you put a, a super price on it and treat it as though it were an exclusive product, the people who craved that exclusivity were going to buy it. You know what? That's still going on. It goes on in in the rag trade. It goes on with shoes. Uh, certainly with shoes. I mean, look at the price of women's shoes. You know. Uh, uh, for example, uh, men's shoes as well. They, they, uh, it, it, that the market will bear it, and and at that point, they don't care if they only sell a uh, hundred tins rather than a thousand because the retail price of the hundred is going to be equal to the to the retail price of a thousand packages of you know. Uh, so they do it one way. Everybody does it his own way. Whatever he can handle, you know. Some some many retailers will decide that they can't they can't handle a certain 
level of product or they don't want to. They don't want to carry pouch tobacco, you know, standard market brand pouch tobacco because they can't uh, they can't move enough of it. They have a different kind of clientele. It's a high-end clientele or a shop in an exclusive area, you know. So nobody nobody on Fifth Avenue wants to stock um, Edgeworth in pouches. <laughs> stock something that's exclusive in a tin and is elegantly presented because that's the that's the market is in that locality um is it a uh, is, is it a similar kind of a similar kind of a picture and a process when you're creating a brand new line of pipes Yes and no. Uh, you have to creating a new line of pipes. If you're not making them yourself, you have to deal with the people who are and what is available and what you can buy. I had some very good training in that, uh, and uh, you know, um, when I was younger, it was it was my father and and the guys at, mostly at Barclay Rex, but with other shops. But because we used to go there on a regular basis, and we would stop in almost every week. I, I would meet him in his office, which was downtown, on Friday for lunch, and we would uh, go and we'd go stop at Barclay Rex afterward when they when it was after lunch and they weren't so crowded as they usually were on Friday and we'd schmooze for half an hour or so and I'd buy a pipe, he'd buy a pipe we'd talk about pipes and so on so I learned a lot from those guys and um, and that's the kind of pipe I went for finally you know I mean I wanted I wanted something that would be uh, well made um, with no varnish you had, to, you had to put in color in some way because not everybody is going to buy a virgin briar with, uh, with, with no finish on it They're just people who die I do but you know but a lot of people don't want that they want something that's all gussied up and you just have to deal with that There's the, and does that mean that you're compromising the answer is yes you are compromising if you're dealing with it yourself you don't want it you shouldn't buy it but if you're dealing with the market the market is what keeps you in business and there are people who want to buy a pipe that is all nice and shiny and if you tell them look i don't like to carry these because because the lacquer or, or varnish or whatever it is um you know, prevents the pipe from breathing, and ultimately it will not taste as good. Uh, at least that was the story we gave out. Uh, I subsequently <laughs> yeah. learned there are ways around that. But, um, you know, so yes, I will sell a pipe that's stained if necessary and uh, is then highly waxed, so it looks, you know, it looks like it's... Uh, it looks like it's varnished, but it really isn't. You know, and eventually the the, the real color uh, comes through, and the wax will the wax the wax will wear off, and then you have a very nice patina on it. Or, and if you want, you can take it into the shop and have them wax it up again, and it looks nice and shiny for three minutes, or until you smoke it. So if you <laughs> if you buy the pipe and you just put it on the shelf and never smoke it, it's going to look beautiful all the time. But if you actually use it, it, it will show its use, and that's part of the beauty of it. So where did I learn that? I learned that from talking to the pipe makers and from talking to people, to marketers, and, and learning that truth. And, you know, and I learned, learned about uh, uh, putting, filling, filling the holes in the pipe. And what I did is I learned about smoking them because I would say, okay, I did that in France not too long ago. Um, I was in the factory. I'll just give you an example because I, I was in the factory uh, placing an order because Chacon made a lot of our pipes. And I knew that they were top quality because I, I, I knew who else was buying them. Uh, and 
and they were all floor free. Some of them had beautiful grain, and some of them had you know, no real exciting grain. It ran in all different directions, and uh, there's a matter of taste in that. The uh, um, but but they were all floor free. So when they were finally finished and had the mouthpieces mounted, uh, they were all of the same quality. Now a limited number, and they can break that down by percentages of how many in a hundred will have perfect straight grain, and the number's very small. And how many should likely come out as bird's eye, and how many had mixed grain, how many have had, you know, something you couldn't define. It was a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but they were all good pipes of exactly the same quality. So so no matter if you were, if you were somebody who was so fussy about the grain, it had to be perfect straight grain that you could that you could measure with a ruler, you had to know that it would probably cost you much more because they would put that into a higher level, higher price end of pipe because, not because it was any better than anything else, but because it was uh, free from flaw and it was, and we're not talking about the same same company as we were before, but free from flaw and with no uh, no external markings and so on. Now, the company we were talking about before uh, they would. They were not buying ten pipes. They were buying thousands of pipes. So when they sorted them out, they would. They of the ones that were put aside, they were all guaranteed free from flaw, and they could charge the same price for each one. And they managed by clever selling and marketing to convince the public that grain really didn't matter. <laughs> okay, that's that's what they did, and that this was an X. Brand X pipe and Brand X pipe was the best uh, known. Um, I'll tell you a story about that. Uh, uh, true story. Uh, I was in London as a young man. I was still a student, uh, graduate student, but I was I was there. And I went to Sheraton. I bought a pipe, and then I went down the street to Dunhill, and I bought a pipe for my father because I really loved Dunhills. Uh, and I knew I didn't have to fuss too much about grain because he always, uh, you know, he, he he pushed that aside. He thought that was a fatuous concern, grain, uh, because he had been trained to think it was. So I brought them. Uh, I bought them, and I was traveling in Europe, uh, a student, and, and I I came back after a couple of months, and I, well, I went to see my dad and my mother, and uh, I gave him. He said, "I know you bought pipes, so let me see what you got." And I showed him this charity which he, I think I told you about that the other, it was absolutely perfect. And he said, oh, that's a beautiful pipe. And and then he said, what did that cost you? I said, oh, the equivalent of about $30. And now $30 between you and me, Brian, and, and your audience in 1960 or 61 was a lot of money. Okay. Yeah. Because an apartment I had near, 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 the, near the college, uh, uh, with uh, two bedrooms and a garage and, and included heat and electric and it cost me $40 a month. So $30 was a lot of money. So he said to me, he really blew his top. He said, he said, what are you crazy? He said, you're a graduate student. You're always pissing and moaning about money. He said, and here you go and you blow $30 on a pipe. So I said to him, I didn't know what to say. Uh, he was right in some ways, but I had to have that chariot. It was perfect. So he said, uh, I, and I, I, I gave him the Dunhill. I had given him the Dunhill, which he thanked me very much for. And he said, I said, yeah, but Dad, the Dunhill cost 25 And he looked at me and he said, yeah, but it's a Dunhill. <laughs> I swear, that conversation really happened. I didn't just make it up for this. At $25 was also a lot of money. But 
it wouldn't have mattered what I said. If I said, oh, that pipe, this pipe cost me $100, he would have said, oh, yeah, but it's a downhill. Because the, the, he, he was trained to do that. We've all been trained to do it. We've been trained by the marketers. We've been trained by our own perception. We've been trained by thinking that one thing is better than another because it costs more. And sometimes that's true. And sometimes, as we all know, everybody who's listening to this and you, that some things just cost more, period. And they don't, they don't necessarily reflect the value. You know, um, they, they, we're, we're, we're trained to think that they do. We're trained to think that certain cars are made by gremlins in the Black Forest or in in in, in some area of, of uh, London, and we don't think of London, of course, as a, as an industrial place. Not not in, you know, because the, we go to London as tourists and we don't see the fringes. You know, we don't see the grotty, the grotty suburbs and the factories and and so on and districts where where industries of all kinds, including pipe makers, can afford to uh, establish themselves. That that believe me, they're not they're not downtown. They're not opposite the the, the royal palace. They're not, they're not <laughs> off Piccadilly. They're they're factories um, and they're in factory neighborhoods and uh, very difficult to get to. Many of my visits to the factories in London were extremely long trips. You either drove and you did, I didn't know where the hell I was going, but I had directions and would get there the days before the uh, GTB. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, the uh, the days before that, you had to follow a map or stop and ask somebody, and they would give you directions which you only discovered were wrong when you wound up somewhere, you know, <laughs> somewhere to the east of China. You know, it was, it was not, uh, but but it was uh, it, it wasn't easy to drive around the perimeters of any of almost any city. It's, it's difficult to get around, and if you can't follow a map perfectly, and certainly you're driving in England and driving on the opposite side of the road with the wheel on the right side rather than the driver's wheel on the right side rather than on the left, it's a very hazardous experience. But, I mean, Dunhill is at, out, the Dunhill factory is out in a, a, a fairly distant, only by time, not necessarily as the crow flies, but it's by time and road, it's a very, it's more complicated place to get to than most other places. Bill Taylor was way, way out, uh, because that was a place where you could get, uh, you know, reasonably inexpensive uh, factory space. And, um, you know, you're starting up as a pipe maker, that's what you have to do. Um, Ken Barnes, too, uh, you know, they... Uh, and I mean, year, many, many years ago, uh, some of the factories were not far from the main center of London because they were able, they had been able to rent a cheap space or they owned the building so they could do what they wanted with it. But as uh, got later on, the value of the space in the building wasn't necessarily... Um, you know, in accord with what they could do with the space or how they could rent it out to someone else. So they moved the factories to cheaper quarters and they simply, the shops simply became, you know, show places for the goods. This, But this is an old story. You don't need me to tell you that. Um, <laughs> anyway, where were we? Uh, we were, we were talking about starting up a pipeline um, oh, pipeline. Okay. Would you, would you go to the factory and tell them, look, I, I want, uh, you know, I want these shapes, but I want this shape a little bit different because maybe you see something different in the marketplace. Yeah, yeah I would. Uh, first of all, they would, of course, trot out what they had in stock, okay? Because yeah. if they had to cut or change the 
change the die for that pipe. This is a long time ago. Today it can be done much more electronically. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Uh, but the um, the if they had to make a new die, they would do it as long as you paid for the cost of the die. Okay, it's it's the same story. They can stamp a pipe with a, sort of this rotogravure thing that they have. Is I don't know rotogravure used to mean uh, Sunday supplements were printed that way. But they have a little machine which in which they can kind of in fundamental. I mean. Not there's not electronic control. They can change the letters and stamp and and stamp it on a pipe. It's a standard printing that you see in a lot of pipes, a lot of inexpensive pipes. It's done it's done uh, readily and uh, uh, in, in a little machine that's set up for that. And sometimes they make a little lead plate they used to, and then they just squeeze it down on each pipe, which they lay in. A, I know one of the pipe makers, Italian pipe makers, has all those pipes that way. They just it just there's a trough in which the uh, the shank lies, and they 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 you know move it so it's centered or wherever they want the stamp, and then they stamp it um, with a sort of a press. You know, comes down, they press it down, and the stamp is in the pipe. But if you wanted something special with logos and stuff, and you have to pay for it, even in the stamping, if you want, and if you yeah. want a new shape that no one ever thought of before that this factory doesn't have. And they'll draw it up for you and they'll send it to a die maker because that, then it becomes important because they can put it on a, because then they put it on a machine that cuts the pipe so they have to have a special die to get it exact and they're not going to take a, a you know it's conceivable <laughs> that yeah, I'll make up the situation let's say you wanted a Canadian you wanted a line of Canadian pipes but you didn't want any any shank that was longer than X um, you didn't want a long shank Canadian, you didn't want a short shank Canadian, you go oh, nose warmer. You wanted a certain a certain length in the uh, in in the shank. They cut it for you. You know they 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 would just set up the machine to cut that because they already had the Canadian die, uh, or they would take the pipes that they had and cut. <laughs> believe me, believe it or not, <laughs> cut off the part that you didn't want. They didn't object. <laughs> Yeah, you were already paying for long stem pipes, you know, so they didn't care. I mean, they're not sentimental in these factories. As much as they like pipes, they love them, they they, they admire them, they smoke them, and that brings me to another story. Uh, but uh, but they would. You said I, they have to be all uniform. If you were that crazy you know, to to think that everything had to be uniform and look exactly the same, you know, let's say you're ordering them for the army and you wanted everybody to have the same pipe, you know. Uh, and, and and that that may be true. Um, I wish I could have been in one of those factories pouring over all those pipes. Anyway, uh, that's where we'll leave story time with Alan Schwartz for now. And if you have any comments or questions, email me, Brian at pipesmagazine.com. I'm Jeremy Reeves, head blender of Cornell and Deal Pipe Tobacco Company. At Cornell and Deal, we think the best things in life are better with age and we are passionate about creating the best possible pipe tobacco available. Fueled by this passion, we introduced the Cellar Series, a collection of blends like no other. While the blends in this series are ready to smoke now, each one has been meticulously designed to optimize depth and complexity as the tobacco ages in the tin. Currently, the Cellar Series is comprised of Oak Alley, Chenay's Cake, Joie de Vivre, Old Grove, and Bourbon Blue, but we will be unveiling new additions to this very special series as time goes on. 
Pick up a tin to smoke now and save a few for later enjoyment so that you can experience all the richness and subtlety each blend will reveal through the years. Cornell & Deal's Cellar Series. The secret ingredient is time. Contact your local or online retailer for information. This is Internet Radio. And we are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show. I uh, hope you're enjoying the uh, story time with Alan Schwartz stuff. It's uh, got maybe maybe one or two more shows to go. Um, all right, for music, for music, going back to Phil Kagey, who we've heard both Keith Moore and uh, Jody Davis talk about. This is, I, I'm thinking I may have played this before, but I still love it. It's called, uh, it's from his album called Acoustic Cafe, and it's the uh, Beatles' Here Comes the Sun, but I just I just love this version, so there you go. It's 
want to find more of phil's music it's phil p-h-i-l last name is keggy k-e-a-g-g-y there's a lot on spotify and he's got a great website and he's often out touring too you've got some mail in the mailbag going back to last week's show with chris Asquith, uh casey goats writes good show i wouldn't worry about 25 years from now because you won't have any idea which end of a pipe <laughs> to put the tobacco in <laughs> well i'll be 75 so yeah i don't know odds are uh then he goes on to say tough interview with chris after all the shows you've done lately where all you had to do is introduce the guest and then sit back like the rest of us and see where he takes us uh for a young guy he makes some exquisite pipes yeah he's uh i'm really interested in that stem work that he's doing uh writing rav says i enjoyed chris despite the audio problems i did wonder at who the pipe maker was that first took him in the name was inaudible. I believe that's uh, Larry Pipes or Paul Hubert. And then uh, he goes on to say, like you, I was very interested in his use of polyester for his stem work. I wonder why others don't use it. Uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll find out eventually. And then he also says, uh, I understand your response regarding the disappearing websites, etc. I guess in their place, the YouTube explosion has emerged I, I don't enjoy most of the YouTube stuff. I assume your show will not disappear during my lifetime. Uh, finally, I'd be honored to be a guest on the show. And uh, check your inbox. The email has been sent. Um, you know, the other thing that I was thinking of on that was uh, in the years of this show, uh, there's been some guests that I've had on the show that have disappeared after being on the show, too. So, yeah, things change. Time moves and... Uh, uh, and small businesses come and go. Uh, Scott Thiele writes, Great to hear the Chris's on the show, Brian. And I didn't realize it until I read it that it was Chris Asquith and Chris Thiele, and that was, and then me. Uh, Scott writes, uh, Chris Asquith makes excellent pipes at very fair prices. I like his contemporary take on the classics. Enjoyed the interview in spite of the audio, which will help us appreciate your usual high production values all the more. I got to meet Chris when he had a table down from mine at the Chicago show the first year he came. And I think he'd only been making pipes a year or two at that point, and they had already looked great. Uh, thanks for playing the cut from Chris Thiele's. Uh, thanks for listening. You're, you're right. It's a, it's a different type of project for him. A collection of songs of the week from the Live From Here radio show. I've been enjoying this collection a lot, but it's possible I'm a bit biased. Well, I don't know why. Um, and then uh, and Scott says, uh, cool, you get to spend a week working at McCraney's. I'd love to spend a bit of retirement time that way, especially in a shop like McCraney's. I don't often remember to comment, but I always enjoy the show. Well, that means more than anything. Uh, and then finally... Crash the Gray writes, great show. I love following Chris. It is great to hear him on an interview. Uh, a number of pipe companies have used polyester and nylon over the years. It is great that Chris uses it. And like all materials, each one is different. But my experience is that it is less used because of how brittle it is. 
if you're a heavy clencher, it can have a tendency to crack or collapse on you. I'm by no means saying that the material Chris uses has this issue, since polyester can vary greatly based on the process. Finally, yes, all good things come to an end, and in my few short years as a pipe smoker, I've seen some groups grow and disappear already. Multiple companies close, favorite makers and blenders disappear or discontinue a line that I loved, etc. Just enjoy your current favorite or friends and move on when the time comes. Although all things come to an end, new ones tend to appear as well. Yeah, that's uh, kind of like what I did with my life recently. Got a new beginning coming. So, All right, uh, again, comments or questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. And rant time is next. This is Phil Morgan, General Manager of Missouri Meerschaum Corncob Pipes in Washington, Missouri. Our mission since 1869 has been to produce great smoking pipes that anyone can afford. We guarantee our pipes won't be your most expensive, but they just might be the ones you smoke the most. At Missouri Meerschaum Company, we don't just sell our corncob pipes. We grow them, make them, and smoke them. Missouri Meerschaum, Washington, Missouri, since 1869. Smokers, keep your pipes clean. I'm serious, keep your pipes clean. So last week, half of the pipe smokers that came in, I asked them what they did to keep their pipes, you know, keep, ask every pipe smoker, what'd you do, what do you do to keep your pipes clean? Well, the ones that said nothing, I said, you know, look, let me show you. So I took it over the Everclear and the pipe cleaner and I cleaned and cleaned and cleaned. And then one pipe smoker in particular said, wow, that tastes a whole bunch better all of a sudden. I said, exactly. Imagine, imagine yourself sitting down to your favorite beer and you pour it into a beer stein and the beer stein is still dirty from the previous beer before. We wash those out. You have a sports bottle with a straw and you have your sports drink in it. After you use it, you wash it out. Well, a pipe is the same way. Keep your pipes clean. At least keep the inside clean so that they smoke well. They don't have to be beautiful or pretty on the outside, but they just have to be clean on the inside. So advise all your friends that smoke a pipe. Again, keep your pipes clean. When you're done eating at home and you have your dish and your fork and your knife, what do you do before you eat the next meal out of it? You clean it. Well, it's the same dang thing with a pipe. Oops, almost swore. Damn thing with a pipe. In between each smoke, give it a good cleaning. If you don't have Everclear, at least use some alcohol or at least, at least just run a pipe cleaner through the thing. I mean, you know, pipe cleaners cost two cents. Keep your pipes clean. And that's a perfect reminder of why everybody that smokes a pipe should listen to this show and learn how to clean their pipes. So just keep sharing out the Pipes Magazine radio show. Keep reminding your pipe smoking friends to, you know, keep their pipes clean.
and listen to the show. All right. Uh, remember, new shows every Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time are posted onto the web and then they're available for eternity. So go back, listen to them again if you really want to, you know, I don't know, kill some time. Uh, I hope you're enjoying the story time with Alan Schwartz. And I want to thank you all for tuning in and say until next time. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing a song and think about sunny weather. Happy trails to you. I'm a little scared. I was standing backstage about to go on and everything. All of a sudden, my whole body went, everybody out. (laughs) We have two exits. Any way you want to leave, everybody out.